Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Paul has been explaining that behaving worthy of who we are in Christ, the whole theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of His grace, and so we're kind of focusing on the walking part. So Paul's been explaining that behaving or walking, living our lives in a way that's worthy of who we are in Christ, of all the riches we have, it requires us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit-filled life that Paul's been describing to us is a life of submission to others. It works in marriage, it works in family, it works in the work environment. And so Paul begins with marriage, and he begins explaining what it means to have a Spirit-filled marriage by addressing the wives. Now, we only got through one verse last week. I know we went quick. We only got through one verse, but in that time we defined what it means for a wife to submit to her husband. And so this morning we will look at why a wife needs to submit to her husband. So a quick reminder, I mentioned this last week, but Beverly and I will be doing a question and answer session about marriage on the Sunday that I finish Ephesians 5, so sometime next June. <laughs> no, probably in, in September at some point, maybe the first or second Sunday of September. We'll, well, not the first because we have the Lord's Supper, but we'll, we'll do it sometime in September. So I encourage you to start writing down your questions now as we go through verses 22 through 33. That way you don't get to that day and go, oh, I had a question I don't remember. Write it down now, and that way you can email them in or however we're going to do it, and that way we have lots of questions to answer. So, All right, so verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And then we get the reason, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Briefly, we want to recap verse 22, what submission is not. Submission is not a command for all women to submit to all men. It says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Being a submissive wife does not mean you submit to every other man more so than you would submit to any other brother in Christ, just as a brother needs to submit to you in Christ. In addition to that, being a submissive wife does not mean you stop being your husband's sister in Christ. You still have a command from God to provoke your husband to love and to good works, not because he's your husband, but because he's still your brother in the Lord. So, what submission is not. So what is submission? Well, we talked about how that word submit is a military term. It means to place yourself underneath the orders or the directives of another. And this is a decision because it's in the present tense, a regular decision you need to make. This is an everyday decision to say, I'm going to, I'm willingly placing myself underneath the leadership of my husband. And then thirdly, the scope of that submission is as unto the Lord. In other words, at the heart of the command for a wife to submit to her husband is a command to submit to the Lord. By placing yourself underneath your husband's leadership, you are placing yourself underneath Jesus' leadership. And so while there is a difference between Jesus and your husband, a vast difference, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, we went into some details on that last Sunday. It gives wives instructions about what to do when your husband is not being like Jesus, when he's not being obedient to the Lord. So why do you need to place yourself under your husband's leadership? Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, there is no the here in the original language. It's for the husband is a head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. If you are a married woman, your husband is not your only head. Jesus is as well. So, 
That does mean, though, that your husband is one of your heads. Now, you realize that the word sounds silly when we throw it out there. What do you mean he's one of my heads? I have one head and it's me. The word here, head, it describes the person who has a supreme status in a society. It means a ruler or a leader. Paul used this word twice in Ephesians to refer to Jesus as the leader of the church. Ephesians 1.22, and he has put all things under, that's the Father, has put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him, Jesus, to be the head over all things, the leader over all things to the church. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So, when we're examining the marriage relationship, the society of a marriage relationship is similar to the society of the church, and therefore it has a leader too, in this case, the husband. Now, I don't know any other way to explain it other than that this is how God sets it up. I don't know any other way to explain it. And if a person has a problem with that, their problem is not with me or Calvary Chapel Orlando's position on, on marriage or women or anything like that. Their problem is with the Lord and His Word. This is how God set it up. There is no other need for any further explanation. There are certain things in Scripture, there are times I find myself in conversations with people and they want to argue with me about it, but why, but why, but why? And I just don't know what else to say is, are you a Christian or not? Because in essence, if you are, then the question of why doesn't matter. God said it, and that's all that matters. There are numerous things in the Scripture that we go through that we just have to take for granted that God said, this is the way it works, or this is the way I have set it up. At some point, if I'm a Christian, I just have to accept that God is God and I'm not. I think sometimes we fall into the mistake of thinking that the whole idea of Christianity is like a partnership, like it's God and sons or God and daughters, like it's a business of some sort. It is not a business. God is God, and we are not. He's the one who made us. He knows us better than we know us. He's the one who created marriage. We did not create marriage. We didn't design it. Trust me, as you look at the way culture views marriage now, we wouldn't have come up with that. But God did, and He designed it, and He knows how it's designed to work. And so He says, this is how it works. There are things in life as a Christian, that you just have to go, well, God says it, and that needs to be enough for me. There are numerous times when your kids come to you and you say things, and they say, well, why? And of course, I always hated it when my parents would say, because I said so. I hated that because I was curious. I don't think God ever comes to us and says, because I said so. However, I do believe that as Christians, there are a lot of things that God's going to say to us, I'm not going to tell you why. Because if I tell you why, it won't make it better. It won't help you in any way. The part that will help you the most is recognizing who I am, what I know, and how much I love you, and trusting in that. So, while I do find that I think there are some hints in the Scripture that explain to us why God does this, God doesn't just come out and say it here. And so we have to just accept as a fact that this is how God set marriage to up to be. Now, we need to note here, God does not say the smarter person is the leader, or the more spiritual person is the leader, or the more experienced person is the leader, or the one with the better track record is the leader in a marriage. He says, it's the husband. It's the husband. 
And when it comes down to it, like I said earlier, the real question is not why, but whether or not the answer God gives here is enough for you to obey Him. Now, when we say that the husband is the leader in the family society of a family and society of a marriage, that does not mean that the husband is the absolute authority. If that is your idea of headship, then you are not biblical in your understanding of headship. The Bible says that the husband also has a head in the marriage relationship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, but I would have you know. In other words, you need to understand something because people often misunderstand this. I would have you know, I want you to fully grasp this truth, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. He sets up the structure of how the family works. Who's the head of the family? Jesus, God. He's the head of the family. If you ever do marriage counseling with us, or or at least me, or premarital counseling, there's going to be a question on there at some point that you do in your homework. And it's going to be, who's the head of the family according to the Scriptures? And I would say probably 50% of people say the husband, which we have to say, no, that's not the right answer. Jesus is the head of the family. The Lord is the head of the family. God is the head of the family. And yet what's so fascinating here is Jesus is not left out of the headship explanation. The head of the man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is the Father. Now, here's the interesting part. If there is any person, any person who could qualify to object to the concept of submission, it's Jesus. Because he is in no way inferior to the Father. Like the silly joke about it's not God and sons or gods and daughters or it's not Bob and his kids, but it concerns us and our partnership with the Lord. That's not how that works. Well, that is how it works with Jesus and the Father. It is. They both have equal ownership of the business because he's God the Father and God the Son. There is no subservience or lesser quality that Jesus has. Jesus is not a lesser God with a lowercase g. He is God, a very God, essence of all God. He is God. All the the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him. He is not in any way, shape, or form inferior to the Father. And as a result, if anyone could object and go, why do I have to submit? Why do I have to have this role in the relationship? Legitimately, you could say, this is not fair. It would be Him. And yet, he willingly submits to the Father. How many times do we see all throughout the Gospels that Jesus says, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I don't say anything unless the Father tells me to say it. I mean, his submission is to the extreme. No marriage is conducted like that. But Jesus is fully submitted to his Father in every way. So if he can do it, what's my problem? There should not be a problem. Husbands, claiming to be the head of the house is not the path to biblical headship. I hear people use that phrase all the time. Well, biblical headship is this, and usually it's explained by someone who doesn't understand biblical headship. Claiming to be the head of your house is not the path to biblical headship. Demanding your wife submit to you is not the mark of a man who's striving for biblical headship. Submission to Christ's headship is. You want to be a man who is leading his family properly? Then be a man who's submitted to Christ not try to get other people to be submitted to you. Because that's how a biblical husband leads his wife. We'll get more to that when we get to the husband section starting next week. Now, one objection that I have heard 
with some frequency from wives who are struggling in their marriages. They'll say, well, I can't, or, or I won't trust my husband with my life like this. You, you're asking me to, to submit myself to his leadership. I, I can't do that. I won't do that. But Paul brings up next at the end of verse 23 that that's not what he's saying. Verse 23, he says, and he, Jesus, the last, this is a pronoun that refers back to its last proper noun, which is Christ. Even as Christ is the head of church, and he, Jesus, not your husband, is the Savior of the body. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're in Christ this morning, wives, you're in the body, right? You're in the body. So, who's your Savior? Jesus is your Savior, not your husband. Your husband is the leader, but Jesus is your Savior. I may have mentioned this last week, but I'll mention it again. I have often heard husbands described as the high priest of their home, and I hate that way of phrasing it because there is only one mediator between God and my wife, and it is not Will Ramirez. I am not her mediator. Jesus alone is her mediator, and He alone exists as the one who can meet all of her needs and rescue her from all of her sins and all of her struggles, especially when that struggle she's having is having to deal with my sins and shortcomings. He is the only one who can rescue her from that and meet all of her needs. And that is Paul's point, ladies. Yes, you have a leader, but He is not your Savior. Jesus has your back even when your husband does not, and Jesus won't fail you even when your husband does fail you. So what's the point? It's the same point that Peter brings up in 1 Peter 3. Trust Jesus. Trust the way He created marriage to be. Trust that He will take care of you, bless you, and rescue you just like He did when you were single. I mean, think about it. If you're Sarah… And Abraham comes up to him and he says, hey, babe, we're going into this new town, and I know some of the folks here. I've done business with them, and they are cutthroat. And you know what? You're maybe 80 years old, but you are still a knockout, and they will kill me so they can marry you. So here's what we want to do. I know we did this 30 years ago, and it didn't work out well, but let's try it again. You tell everybody you're my sister, and then we can get through this, and everything will be fine. Now, I don't know if Sarah turned to him and said, 30 years ago, I ended up in a harem. You really want to do this again? Yeah, it'll be better this time. But the Bible tells us that she said, all right, Lord. No, she didn't say it that way, but she called him Lord. The idea was she followed his leadership. She said, okay. And then she did it without terror or fear. Why? Because her husband knew what he was doing? Nope. (laughs) Certainly not. But it's because she trusted the Lord that even when her husband was still being a knucklehead, the Lord would take care of her. When he wasn't leading well, that the Lord would take care of her, that he loved her, and he would rescue her. And you know what? Things didn't turn out as bad this time. Yes, there was a negative thing because Abraham was in the wrong. He shouldn't have done it that way. But God took care of her. She didn't end up in a harem this time. And God will take care of you, even when your husband is not doing what he should do. Now, Something that often gets lost in this discussion of submission is the fact that you signed up to marry an imperfect person. This is something that we tell people when we do marriage counseling or premarital counseling with them. You signed up to marry a sinner. You, whether you realize it or not, signed up to partner in someone else's sanctification what does it mean, their sanctification? 
Sanctification is the idea that of we're being made more like Jesus every day. Now, if you are not fully sanctified yet, then it means you're not like Jesus yet, which means you're going to exhibit behavior and attitudes and all sorts of things that are not like Christ. So, you decided to marry someone who isn't like Jesus yet, who is on the path to becoming like Jesus, and is going to have some road bumps in the way, speed bumps in the way. It's going to take some detours along the way where Jesus is going this way and they're off over here. You decided to partner in that sanctification process. That is something you need to understand when it comes to submission. Because very frequently I say, well, I'm not submitting to that man because look at what he's doing. Okay, well, why are you surprised? He's not Jesus. He's not the Lord. He's not there yet. He's still in process. So we must never lose sight of that fact that you married an imperfect person. You married someone who is still being sanctified and will continue in that process until they're home with the Lord. They will never, to the day they die, be exactly like Jesus. A husband's imperfections can often be frustrating or annoying and even emotionally painful. But the part that Peter doesn't bring up in 1 Peter chapter 3 is that wives have imperfections too. They signed up for the same deal with you. We look at Sarah and we think, wow, what amazing faith that she would do that that way. Sometimes maybe you're sitting there as a, a wife and you're thinking, I don't know if I could do that. We admire that. We look up and wow, she trusted the Lord in a crazy situation like that. Without any fear, without any worry, God would take care of her. That's some serious faith. But Sarah wasn't always like that either. You remember the idea to marry Hagar and have a child through her? Whose idea was that? Sarah. Can you imagine? Here you are, Abraham, and God has given you this promise, and you can't have kids, but you keep trying, and you keep seeking the Lord, and you keep trusting Him, and all of a sudden your bride comes to you and goes, I'm done trusting God. If we don't do something, it's not going to happen. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to marry my handmaid, Hagar. I don't even like Hagar. You're going to marry her. And you're going to have a kid through her. And that'll be our kid. And that's how God will do it because God's not doing it on his own. We got to help him out. Remember after the Lord came to Abraham and they had kind of had a meal, came with two other angels before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and they had a meal and Abraham's sitting there with the Lord. And the Lord says, Abraham, a year from now, Sarah's going to have a child. Well, she's over here in the car. She's going, who's this interesting guy who's come to visit? Who are his two companions here? An interesting conversation going on with my husband. What's going on here? And as she's listening, and the Lord says, a year from now, Sarah's going to have a child. And she goes, Pfft. she laughs. And the Lord heard it, and he goes, why did, Sarah, why did you laugh, Sarah? And she goes, I didn't laugh. Not only does she have no faith, she lies to the Lord's face. Sarah wasn't perfect either. And so, if you're taking notes, if you don't take notes about anything else, take notes about this. Marriage, the biblical definition of marriage, marriage is an unconditional commitment between two imperfect people. Elizabeth Elliot said that, I think. Is that correct? Yeah. Marriage is an unconditional commitment between two imperfect people. And if you do not recognize that that's what marriage is, you're going to struggle. If you, if you are looking for your husband to be your savior, you have either read way too many Christian romance novels or you've been watching way too much Hollywood. He's not meant to be your savior, ladies. You have a savior. 
you have a mediator between you and God. You have someone you can always go to who will never fail you, who will always, always love you and take care of you and treat you right. Your husband will fail you, but you've made a commitment to him, an unconditional one, even though you know he's not always going to do his part. So if you're expecting your husband to be your savior, you are doomed to disappointment. Now, this is where the other parts of 1 Peter chapter 3 come in. We talked about 1 Peter chapter 3 and talking about how to handle it when your husband's not being like Christ. We talked about Sarah's faith, and then we talked about being of one mind. We talked about last week the importance of recognizing that marriage is a team effort. It's about working together. It's about both of you bringing things to the table and recognizing that God has done that in your life, that you need to hear what they have to say, and they need to hear what you have to say. But it says more than just being of one mind. In verse 8 of 1 Peter 3, it says also, finally, have compassion one of another. Love like brothers. Be pitiful, which means to be tender-hearted. Be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. In other words, not only are we to have the same mind, we're to work together, but we are to have compassion one another. What is compassion? Compassion is when you see someone has a need and your heart goes out to them. How many times do you see your spouse in need and you're just irritated? There are times when we see other people and see them going through a hard time and go, oh, that sounds awful. But if your spouse was going through that, you'd be like, what's your problem? That is wrong. If we could treat a stranger with compassion, how much more should we be treating our spouse with compassion? Again, you're the one who said, hey, you're a lost person who's been redeemed by Christ, but you're nothing like him yet. You're still here in the muck and the mire. I do. But then you're upset. You're like, you got some mud on me. Well, why'd you jump into the muck? Tim Keller talks about this in his book on marriage. There are two great recommendations I give to you for books on marriage. His book, oh, now the titles escape me. Anyway, it's Tim Keller's book on marriage. You can find it. But secondly is, is a book called Always by Pastor Jim Gallagher, Cowery Chapel Vero. It's a little bit shorter, but it's great. Tim Keller in particular talks about this idea of being a partner in your partner's sanctification, that you are deciding, I want to be with you in all of your struggles, in all of your sins and the parts of you that are not like Christ yet, I am going to partner with you in the process of Christ making you more like Himself. And so that means you need to have compassion. You can't come home, husbands, and all of a sudden your wife is crying, and you look over there and you go, now why? I thought we talked about this for like an hour and a half yesterday. I thought everything was better. What's wrong with you? And it's, this maybe isn't communicated like that, but it's communicated like this. You put the keys down, you put your stuff down, and you sit down, and you're like, what happened? What's going on? And you're looking just for that quick fix that you can just come in and put the Band-Aid on, and then she'll smile, and then you can go about your night and do what you wanted to do for the evening. That's the opposite of compassion. Compassion is when you see it and you go, oh my gosh, that's my bride, and she's hurting right now. I don't know why. I may never comprehend why. <laughs> but I can tell by the tears in her eyes or the look on her face that she's hurting right now, or she's frustrated, or she's scared, or she's 
angry or whatever it might be. And to come alongside and go, I'm here. That's the best thing you can do. Come alongside and go, I'm here. Like, I'm in this with you. I'm not going anywhere. And whatever it takes. And if that means you have a two-hour conversation again like you did the day before, you do it. And it goes the other way, ladies. Why, why are you frustrated again? You hate your job again. You hated your job yesterday. You hated your job the day before that. Is there ever going to be a day you come home and don't hate your job? Is there ever going to be a day you come home and be happy to see us? We're here all day long waiting for you to come home. We're happy to see you. What's your problem? Bob over there likes his job. Tom over there likes his job. Why can't my husband like his job? Instead of recognizing that he doesn't feel valued, doesn't see the worth of what he's doing with his life, all the things he's battling through in his mind, having compassion upon him, and realize he's struggling as Christ is trying to sanctify him. Are you compassionate towards your husband's struggles, his weaknesses, or his lack of experience in life? It says, love like brothers. I have lots of brothers, and we would scrap all the time as kids. All the time we'd be scrapping. There'd always be times where we'd be upset at each other about something. And it could be the dumbest of things or it could actually be a serious thing. Be out playing football and be like, how come you throw better passes to Tommy than you do to me? But you know what? We're out there the next day playing football because we're still brothers. There's a loyalty there. Sometimes I see people and they're more loyal to someone they've never met in their life than they are to their spouse ready to just abandon them at the simplest of problems. Like, well, that's how you're going to be. Well, fine, go. I don't want to talk about it. Really, you talked about it with three other people at work today. Be pitiful. Be, it means be tender-hearted, similar to compassion. And being courteous, it just means being nice, being polite, being kind. Are you courteous to your husband even when he fails? Or are you ready to tear into him? Can't believe you did that again. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, it means like an insult or a, a nastiness. But in contrast to evil for evil or insult for insult, blessing for evil, blessing for insult. Do you frequently render evil for his evil or insult for his insult? Or do you look for ways to bless him even though you know that there are ways he could be a bigger blessing to you, wives? This is Christian marriage, folks. It is radically different from our culture's ideas of fair or right or equal. And whatever ideas we want to bring to the table of how things should be, if it doesn't line up with this, then it doesn't matter. Biblical marriage is never described as 50-50. If anyone is telling you that, if you're seeing a counselor is telling you that, stop seeing him or stop seeing her because they're not telling you the truth. Biblical marriage is not 50-50. Biblical marriage is always described as you give 100% no matter what percent your spouse is giving. And you do it because Jesus is your Savior and He always gives you 100%. I love my wife like Christ loved the church. I'm called to do that every day and I need to do it every day because Jesus always, always gives 100% to me. And you're called to do the same as a wife to your husband because Jesus always gives you 100% as well. 
Now, we get down to verse 24 here in Ephesians chapter 5 as we complete this section on what it means to be a spirit-filled wife. And he says, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The word therefore is a bad translation. Literally, it's a contrasting word. In other words, it says in verse 23, wives need to submit to their husband because the husband is the head of the wife, just like Jesus is the head of the church. And Jesus is the Savior of the body. Nevertheless, or but, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. In other words, it's saying in verse 24, despite the fact that Jesus is your Savior and Jesus is your ultimate head, wives, you still need to embrace this submission to your husband in the same way the church must embrace submission to Jesus. In the same way that the church has regularly placed itself in the role of submission, in this way, you need to be to your own husbands. This is the role that God has assigned to you in the marriage relationship, and you have a choice. You can either embrace it or you can reject it. If you're going to embrace it, then you're embracing a worthy view of marriage, a, a view that is worthy of what it means to be in Christ. If you're going to reject it, the other view leads to clinging to your own view of marriage and therefore will be incomplete and flawed. Now, if you decide to embrace this God-given role, then you are embracing the responsibility that God gives you to meet your husband's chief need. And your husband's chief need is to feel valued. In chapter 5, verse 33, it tells us at the very end, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband, Old King James says. That word reverence, it means respect. Did you know that that song, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, was not written by a woman? It was originally written and sung by a man. That's where it comes from. It's written by a man. Listen to the lyrics and you'll, you'll, you'll see that it's actually written from the position of a husband to his wife. Respect is defined in the dictionary as a feeling of deep admiration for someone, usually as a result of their abilities, qualities, or achievements. It also refers to a due regard for others' feelings and wishes. If you haven't figured it out yet, men and women are very different. We have different needs. We're wired different ways. It doesn't mean a woman doesn't want to feel valued, but I would say that's the most important thing. If you talk to any counselor, they'll tell you this. What's the most important thing to a man? To feel valued. Even the most arrogant man I've met is keenly aware of just how much he fails. Every man I know craves respect. We crave someone to believe in us, someone to believe that we are worth something and that our lives somehow matter for something. I don't quote movies often, but there was a scene from the end of the movie Saving Private Ryan that hit me hard years ago when I saw it. The movie starts with an older gentleman, and he's at the cemetery over there in France that is commemorated to the American soldiers who gave their lives on D-Day in Normandy and then, of course, in, in other battles that took place in Europe. And at the end of the movie, after you hear his story, you find out that the man who is visiting the gravestone is a much older Private Ryan, and he's visiting the gravestones of the men who died so he could live. And he turns to his wife with tears in his eyes, and he says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. 
The point of the scene is that he's asking the person who knows his flaws and failures better than anyone to tell him that his life meant something, that it mattered that others died before they could live their full life so that he could live his full life. If you're going to look at your husband's flaws and failures and just be frustrated, rather than value the man you said, I do too, you will fail in your God-given responsibility to be a helper suitable to him. And if you fail in that God-given responsibility, then you will not shine to a world that desperately needs to see something different. You will instead partner with the unfruitful works of an unworthy life, a life that falls far short of who you are in Christ. If you are married, I implore you this morning, respect your husband. It is his greatest need and it is your great calling. If you're a woman and intend to be married someday, then please realize this is what you are saying I do too. Please do not marry a man because of his looks or his possessions or his position in society or because you don't think anyone else will marry you or because you want to get away from your parents or because you're scared of being alone. Jesus is your Savior. No man can meet those needs. You will be greatly disappointed. No man can meet those needs. And you will wake up one morning and you will tell yourself, I don't love this person and it will become a very big struggle for you. And if you got married for the wrong reasons, well, praise the Lord, because He's a miracle worker. He's the one who can turn water into wine. Men, again, and women are different. I have certainly had men come to me and tell me I don't love my wife anymore, but it is much more, much more frequent to have a woman tell me that and say, I don't love my husband. I don't have an emotion for him. I don't have any emotion for him anymore. I don't know if I ever had emotion for him. And because of that, you can deceive yourself into thinking that this can never work. But Jesus is the one who turns water into wine. And he can take a heart that has no emotion and no desire to pursue that man, and he can change that, and he can kindle a love for that man. He's the one who can part the Red Sea. You look at it, you go, nope, the Red Sea's here. There's no other way than but to head back where I came from. Well, he's the one who parts the Red Sea and enables you to walk through it to the other side. If you will choose to value and respect the man that you're married to, God will begin working on your heart and he will give you the desire to fulfill the role you signed up for, even if that's not why you originally signed up for it. Amen? I realize that some of the things that I describe here as it regards marriage, it may not sound like maybe how you thought marriage would be. I realize that most of us grow up and we have this idea of our happily ever after, right? And it looks certain ways. It's like a Disney movie or it's like some other movie or like some book that you've read. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that marriage can't be that way. I am living the dream. I married my high school sweetheart When I met her, I wanted to date her immediately. And while she had no interest in me and things didn't happen for many years later, and I may have chased a couple other girls here and there, I never would have thought of marrying any other girls. But this one, that anytime the thought would come back to her, I'd be like, I'd I'd like to spend the rest of my life with that woman. Again, we started dating as seniors in high school and 
It's been a lot of romance. It's been a lot of fun. I have a happy marriage. I wake up in the morning. I lay down in bed at night to this beautiful woman who's next to me, and I think, I'm married to this woman as she snores. (laughs) She doesn't snore. Loudly. I wake up and I think, that's my bride. Like, I love life. We have fun together. We, we enjoy life together. We spend quality time together. I feel like I'm living the dream. But the truth is, we are both still fallen, and sometimes that dream feels like a nightmare. There are sometimes you're like, oh, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do this. You see that picture of Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's beautiful. They're naked and they're unashamed. You're looking at each other, and you see, there's nothing in between each other, no walls. There's full disclosure, there's intimacy and closeness, and there's full acceptance of each other. And that's how God wants marriage to be. It's how He designed marriage to be. But that is pre-fall Adam and Eve. Post-fall Adam and Eve looks a little different. Got some fig leaves hanging out there, right? You got some fig leaves. You got other things where they're not really chatting about things. They're scared. They're frightened. The whole experience is very different. There are things that need to be worked through. They go through an experience where one of their own children murders another one of their children. It's not always the dream. Sometimes it's the nightmare. So what do you do then? Well, you strive for what you had. But not just because it's the idea of what we want to go back to perfection. It's the idea of God, how how God set it up in perfection. And so you need to go back to doing things God's way. And that's the only way that you can experience all that God has for you. Listen, there are four principles, five, but one of them has to do with kids, so we'll just stick to four right now. Four principles of marriage. The Bible says, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. You have got to break off the ties that you have with your previous family connections, and you need to dedicate yourself to your spouse. Secondly, it says, and, the, uh, it says, and, they, and cleave to his wife. You, the word there, cleave, it means to superglue. Seriously, you need to be committed for the long haul. It's not just you need to break off the other commitments you have and she becomes a priority or he becomes a priority, but you need to be committed for the long haul. Now, those are just the first two principles of marriage, and if you get those two right, you'll have a marriage that lasts. The next part, it says, and the two were one flesh, unified. It's things we were talking about last week, about being of one mind, working together. You can have a marriage that lasts, but it doesn't mean you're unified, which means it doesn't mean you accomplish anything. So if you want to survive marriage, you got to get the first two principles right. You need to break off the previous commitments and make your spouse the priority. Secondly, you need to be in it for the long haul, no matter what. If you can do those two things, you'll have a marriage that survives. may not accomplish anything, but you'll survive. You want to accomplish something, then you need to work together. But notice, in all those three things that I said there, those three principles, I never mentioned happiness. That's because there's another principle, and they were naked and unashamed. Happiness comes from looking over at another sinner and going, I love you, and I accept you, and I'm in this with you. Hold my hand. And when you've done that, year after year after year, and you shared that part of life together, where you know you're loved, you know you're accepted no matter what. Well, that brings a lot of joy. And you can enjoy a lot of life. 
So you choose which one you want. How much you want to obey is where you can get to in your marriage. So I exhort you, wives, respect your husbands, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And come back next Sunday so you can figure out how to do that. Let's all stand. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's life. It's good. Even though, Lord, there are sometimes it challenges us right to the core of our being, right to the core of our, our, our deepest struggles, the things that hurt the most or the things that are hardest for us. So this morning I pray for every person out there who is committing something to you, that you would fill them with your spirit and empower them to live out that commitment. Lord, if there are wives out there who are saying, Lord, I, I submit to your plan for marriage, I'm submitting to you. You're my savior and my husband is my leader and I'm okay with that. And I want to live in light of those two truths and I embrace the role that you've assigned to me. Lord, will you fill them with your spirit so they can live that out? We help them to remind them to be in the word every day so they can be filled with the spirit regularly so that they can be able to live that out. Lord, for all of us, whatever it is that we're committing to you this morning, help us to live it out, we pray in Jesus' name. And I pray you bless every marriage here. In Jesus' name, amen.